0: Well, the title of my sermon is, I Will Remember Their Sins No More. Uh, Leviticus chapter 16, just one chapter this week. Everyone's like, oh, good. After last week, my goodness. So one chapter, we are going to be covering this. And I I just want you to stop and consider that statement. Comes from the, the book of Jeremiah chapter 31. I will remember their sins no more. How is that possible? We're going to get into that more and consider what that means, both in in reality for the Lord himself and in practice for us as we live day by day in this world. Leviticus chapter 16 is where we're going to be. And I I just tell you that this is an interesting chapter in structure. Uh, You have to approach this chapter as if you're landing in an airplane. You come in at 60,000 feet and you survey the Day of Atonement. And then you get a little closer and you see some more details and then you land and you get out and you look in detail through each piece of it and you get on the plane and you fly back up and you look back and you see the summary, okay? So that's kind of how this this chapter is arranged. There's, There's parts of it that seem a little repetitive, but it's just a matter of zooming in and then stepping back and looking at what we've looked at. So that's how the verses are laid out. And I tried in my outline to kind of move us piece by piece through there. So we can see that unfold. Let's begin in verses 1 through 5, preparation for the Day of Atonement and cleansing uh, for Aaron here. Chapter uh, 16, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. You don't just walk in on any just average day and just just open that curtain. For he says, I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way shall Aaron come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the, Uh, the linen undergarment on his body, and he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. He shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Okay, so you begin here by looking back. You remember when Aaron's sons, they offered strange fire before the Lord and they were basically killed by God with a bolt of lightning. It struck them dead where they stood and they were hauling these guys out because they played light and free with the presence of God and his holiness. They began to invent and come up with ways that they think that they should worship him. So they, they just grabbed some fire and threw some incense. And I think maybe even from this, that they ducked into the Holy of Holies or they they tried to, to go and approach where the presence of God was and bam, they dropped dead where they stood. That is called to mind as Aaron is instructed in how this day is to be unfolded. And you can know Aaron will never, ever forget the day his oldest two boys were killed by God for disrespect and disregard for the holiness of God. So Aaron here is a man who is focused and attentive and listening. He wants every detail to be observed. And here's the deal. The stakes couldn't be higher. It's, it's life or death for Aaron. So he is listening and focused and attentive here. I was also struck as you read through these opening verses with the, the difference in his attire one day out of the year and kept in uh, the holy place through the whole year was a separate um, set of clothing for the high priest to put on normally the high priest would wear uh, this from head to toe garments for glory and beauty right colorful and the 12 stones and all of the tassels and all of these things that represented the glory of god among the people as he served as a mediator between God and man. But today, his garments were very simple. In fact, uh, the scholars would say he looked a lot more the part of a a slave and a servant than a high priest on the Day of Atonement. He would dress with a linen coat. Just think white. Everything is white. A white linen coat, and then his uh, white linen shorts, and then a white linen belt, and a white turban. And he would come out of the holy place with this head to toe. After cleansing his body and preparing and everything, he is now dressed in white. Why is this? I like how someone put it. It's an interesting contrast between the rest of the days of the year. 364 days and then this day that's set apart. When he was representing God to man, to Israel, he wore garments of glory and beauty. He was to represent the the sanctity and holiness of God to them. They should see him and see him set apart as one who is there who is representing God to them. But, But when it turned around and the equation reversed, when he was representing Israel to God, he dressed in humility and servanthood. Friends, that's true of us as well. That's true of us. Sometimes we live in a day where everything is inclined to make much of us. Aren't we amazing? Aren't we glorious? Isn't just God just is so amazed at how awesome we are. And and this text calls us back to it's just a simple thing. The change of clothes. The glory is God. He's jealous for his own glory. I will share my glory with no one else. And when we come before him, we come before him with reverence and awe, in humility, as servants. Humble. And so the day unfolds. Now, the ceremony is summarized in verses 6 through 10. Let's look at this. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and his house. Then he shall take two goats And set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots. It's like rolling the dice. uh, Over the goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. Huh? Azazel? Sorry, keep reading. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. Right? So it's on the altar. It's burned. And Aaron. The goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. And we all collectively are like, who is Azazel? What is this? This is a fascinating thing that has uh, brought a lot of commentary and a lot of speculation. Some have suggested even that this is some kind of uh, demonic uh, entity that is out in the wilderness and that they are sending a, a, a goat representing their sin out to appease this, this demonic entity. Uh, let's be clear. That's not it. Now, whatever it is, it's not that. Leviticus 17 specifically prohibits any sacrificing to the goat gods of the wilderness. That was a thing in pagan nations. It was not to be practiced among God's people. So I guarantee you it's not some kind of, well, we'll give one to God and one to Satan. No, that's not how it rolls. This is not the yin and the yang. This is not, you know, the good force and the bad force. You know, I'm, I'm butchering the Star Wars reference here, but you know what I mean. Azazel means scapegoat, scapegoat. Actually, you know who coined this? William Tyndale. Coin this. As he studied deeply, he came up with this phrase, the escape goat, or the goat that escapes. And we lost the E over time, and so now we just use this, this word, scapegoat. And the focus of this is not that the goat is allowed to live and the other one is, is, is killed, but that the goat carries the sins of the people and is removed to the wilderness. He is sent away and Ironically, it's pretty much a death sentence, right? It's a domesticated animal sent out into the wilds of the wilderness on his own. He's pretty much a meal for something out there. So the Azazel uh, Azazel scapegoat is in view here. One is to be the sacrifice. One is to be the scapegoat. It's interesting, over time, the, uh, the practice kind of morphed into something beyond what God had said, which is actually common for the Jewish people back in that time. They would take what God had said and they would add to it. That was to their detriment. Jesus called that out. They would then take the scapegoat up to a rocky precipice, turn him around backwards, and throw him off the cliff to kill him uh, off of that rock. And uh, that's not commanded here in the text, Uh, but that became a practice. So, there are two goats. The lots are cast. One goat is to be sacrificed as a substitute for atonement. The other is for atonement to be placed uh, the sins upon and removed from the congregation. So from the tent of meeting all the way through the congregation of Israel all the way to the outside the camp and beyond that to the wilderness as far from the holiness and presence of God, it could be. Now, we're beginning to feel a connection here, aren't we? With Christ and his work. He is our substitute, atoning sacrifice on the altar or, for us, the cross. And he is our glorious scapegoat. In fact, if you study the meaning of the word in the way we use it today, if you say, well, well, someone just became a scapegoat, It means that they were blamed or they were punished for the sins of someone else. That totally fits with the gospel. All of that that Christ accomplished is foreshadowed in this commandment in Leviticus 16, the day of atonement. So let's look in detail at this ceremony. There are four scenes. If this were a a movie, you've got four main scenes that this moves through. The first is the bull for the sins of Aaron and the priest. The bull sacrifice for the sins of Aaron. Aaron is a sinner. And his his uh, sons are all sinners. And so the I mean the mediator has to have his sins addressed before he can bring anything of a representation of the congregation's sins. So we begin there. Verse 11. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself. And for his house, he shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. And he shall take a censer full of coals of fire. Notice where from from the altar before the Lord and add to it. Then two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord. Okay, you see how this is happening He's moving then with great, great care toward the Holy of Holies, a place that he is not to enter any other day of the year. And he puts this incense on the coals and puts it through the curtain to fill the Holy of Holies with a fragrant aroma and, and, and smoke so that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony, so that Aaron doesn't die. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. And on the front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Hmm. This is an amazing experience. Just imagine being Aaron. Imagine what it would be like to come and atone for your own sins and and you have this bull and you've got the blood now and you are approaching the presence of God. You know what has happened to your sons. And so you walk with fear and trembling. Just imagine how he would be shaking as he put the incense on the censer and reached in and then with great care ducked through Into the holy of holies, where the ark of the covenant was, the presence of God was dwelling. This is an artistic render rendering of the ark, uh, of what it may have looked like. Notice the poles here; these are important uh, for transport. The correct way that God commanded. When they disregarded that, uh, well, someone died. Right. So you obey the Lord in all of the details. The mercy seat is a reference to this top cover right here. Inside is the testimony. Uh, up here, we have the mercy seat. It's a very sacred and holy place. And it is on that seat. It's not a, like a chair seat. It's a location. That is where the glory of God dwelled. And over that, God commanded in Exodus that these, these uh, angels, these cherubim, would be reaching their wings out and, and touching right over the top, to, to kind of communicate how holy and sacred that spot is. That is where God dwells among his people. Hmm. So Aaron is to take the blood of this bull and sprinkle it. Did you did you catch that? Seven times. Seven times. In the Bible, the number seven is, is a number that references completion or perfection. So he is to make a perfect sprinkling of this blood for himself and his household, his sons, the priests. There is only one mediator. I want you to just imagine if you are uh, the people, the congregation of Israel, and you've gathered and you're watching this unfold and you you see Aaron duck his way in through the Holy of Holies you're sure hoping that he confessed all his sins, right? You're sure hoping that this man has bathed appropriately, that he has prepared himself, that he is both in heart and in mind prepared to do this because if he fails, we're goners. What do we do if he drops dead? There is only one mediator. This points us to Jesus as well. The world would like to suggest that there are many saviors, that there are many ways to get to God. The Bible, the gift of God himself, says there is only one mediator. That is uh, kind of prefaced here in this display. It's confirmed in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. There is no other way, no other truth, no other life. It's only in Jesus that we come. What if Aaron dies? They say that there was a tradition or a practice that came later where they would actually wrap a a rope around one ankle of the high priest when he went into the Holy of Holies. Because if he was struck dead by the Lord, how would they ever get him out? You can't go in there. I dug deeper on that this week, and I, I just don't think that that was commanded of the Lord, that nothing of the attire mentioned anything about tying a rope so you can drag him out if he drops dead. Whether they did that or not, uh, I don't know, but uh, there's a, a lot of talk about that. But that, if nothing else, it highlights the moment. What if he dies? What will we do? Will he survive? There's a collective holding of the breath by the entire assembly of Israel as our high priest has entered now in to the presence of God himself. And he comes back out. You have this collective. Okay, good. Now, next step, scene two. The goat for the sins of the people. He shall kill the goat uh, of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil. Same place. Uh, With its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Will we survive is the question. That's what it comes to now. Okay, good. So Aaron made it out. He's okay. But my goodness, we're talking about one year of communal sinning. What if this was the year that we're looking back on? And and we know that as a nation, we have rebelled against God. We've grumbled against his appointed leaders. We have not obeyed his commandments. What if if this was just a terrible year collectively for us? We have miserably failed. Well, the reality is, is that that happened. And that happens, doesn't it? Will we survive? When Aaron comes out of the Holy of Holies, probably backing his way out with great care, right? Oh, good praise you lord thank you for your mercy that you have provided by the blood of the sacrifice now scene three the cleansing of the tent and the altar Aaron shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people and of Israel because of their transgressions and all their sins and so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one may be uh, in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself, for his house, and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. And it shall take some of the blood of the bull and and of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar and all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his fingers seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. Now, isn't this an interesting part of the day? Part of the there? Why is there a need to, to, to atone for and cleanse and purify inanimate objects? Well, it's an interesting thing. This altar has been witness to a year of confessions of sin and filth and guilt and and the tent of meeting, whether it's moved or stayed in the same place on on any of these 40 years along the way, it has been in the middle of a camp of close to 2 million sinners. And so he calls Aaron, Aaron, to consecrate the tent itself, the tabernacle, and the altar, the location where all of this sin has been spoken and confessed. It's an interesting thing. Sometimes places will trigger memories of sin, won't they? Things you've done. Sins committed in this area or that. You have this memory that just won't let you go. There is in this day kind of this collective purging, even of these locations. Cleanse them by the blood, by the blood. Now, scene four, the driving away of the scapegoat. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat, and Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it, listen to this, all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. You think that's a short prayer? Oh, man. This would have been quite a moment. Unlike any other day in their calendar year, this is my sheep woolly. wooly He's not a goat, but we'll pretend, okay? He helps me from time to time. The high priest comes and he lays both hands on the head. Now remember, this is a, a blemishless, uh, uh, let me say, a goat without blemish. He is qualified, but he is an innocent little goat, right? This goat, this goat didn't do anything. Now he is going to receive the collective And communal years worth of our sins upon his head. Just imagine how this prayer may have gone. This could have taken an hour or two or three, depending upon the year. Oh God, we come to you in view of your presence and your holiness. We come as sinners. We have broken your law. Just go through the list of the Ten Commandments alone. The testimony, right? We have had other gods before you this year. We have in this camp. We have made graven images. Now, we've sought to find them and destroy them, but that has been a part of our experience this year. We have spoken of your name in ways that are disrespectful and unholy. We have degraded the purity of your name. We haven't treasured it as we ought. We have failed to set apart the Sabbath day as we should and and not keep it holy because you are holy. We want to honor your Sabbath day, but Lord, we failed at that as well. We have many in our midst who have failed to honor their father and their mother. They've disobeyed they've disregarded, they've disrespected. We together in that, we confess that. I mean, just go through the list. Maybe in this, we've got murderers in the camp. There are those who have killed this year. Maybe for us, in our congregation, I hope no one has taken a life in murder. What about our hearts? This is what Jesus did. He took the law and he just drilled it right through us you hate your brother you've committed murder in your heart we've committed adultery lord in our camp there's been adultery committed and jesus drills this into whoever looks at a woman with lustful intent has committed adultery with her in his heart we confess that we set all of that here on this goat. We've stolen. We've stolen glory that's yours alone. We've stolen from our brothers and sisters. We've lied. We've misrepresented truth. We have not spoken truth when we ought. We have coveted. Just imagine what that would have been like. You know, in our church, we don't often do this, but in other um, traditions, there is uh, sometimes a practice of like a, a liturgy of, of confession, like a communal, we together confess. John Apple did this recently, just a, a number of weeks ago. I loved it. It's so true. We confess individually every day, right? It's, it's, it's Lord, I. There is a place as well where we say, Lord, we, we, we're a family. We're family, and we have sinned. My sin affects you, your sin affects us and me. We're together in this. And so this confession would be conducted. And he shall put them on the head of the goat, them being the sins of the congregation for that last year, and send the goat away into the wilderness by the hand of the man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear their iniquities on itself a remote area and he shall let the goat go free into the wilderness escape escape goat hmm. this would have been a moment to remember you're in the camp and all of a sudden you see this goat walking a lot of times they would put this uh, this cord this wasn't commanded but uh, it became a practice they would take a scarlet cord and they would wrap it in his horns and around his head. And as he was being led through the camp, just imagine the somber reality of that. That goat is carrying my sin. And he is being led outside of the camp. I can't help but hear echoes of Jesus carrying the crossbeam up the hill. Where? Outside the city. He was led not just outside the camp, but in this case, into the wilderness to be released. It wouldn't have only been somber. It would have been celebratory. Here's part of what you would experience. As you see that goat farther and farther away, the goat is gone. All of a sudden, you have this sense like, yes, my sin's been taken away and removed Mm. atonement and removal atonement so one goat was killed as a substitute sacrifice the other goat was atoning by removing the sins from the camp and so you have this show up in all kinds of different ways listen to this in psalm 103 part of our call to worship He does not deal, our Father, our God. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love for those who fear him. As far as east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. What do you think the psalmist had in view as he was writing that? He's got the scapegoat going off over the horizon with my sins, our sins. He's removing them from us. What a beautiful thing. Isaiah spoke well about this. It's as if the cord of scarlet representing our sins was placed on Jesus on the cross and laid upon Him Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, right? All we, like sheep, we've gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him, just like this. The Lord has laid on him, our glorious scapegoat, the iniquity of us all. Hmm. In Jesus Christ, we have the mediator between God and man. It is Jesus and it's only Jesus. In Jesus, we have the atoning substitute, sacrifice who died in our place to ransom us and pay the price with his blood. But we also have in Jesus, this is a piece of the gospel we can celebrate. We have a scapegoat who has taken our sins and removed them. As far as east is from the west. That's all rooted here in this in this day, the Day of Atonement. And it's all about Jesus. The whole chapter is about Jesus. Now, some final
1: directions here as we finish these verses. Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and shall take off the linen garments that he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. And he shall bathe his body in water in a holy place and put on his garments and come out and offer his burnt offering, and the burnt offering of the people, and make atonement for himself and for the people. And the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar. And he who lets the goat go to Azazel shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire, and he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. And it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves, it is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses so once a year
0: once a year this takes place i heard a pastor describe this as uh that moment along the way in the year when you realize that your gutters are clogged again right and you get out the ladder and the bucket and you reach up in there oh this is the worst and you just start pulling that sludge out and dropping it in the bucket the day of atonement it's like that it's whatever has stacked up over the year, known or unknown sins, anything of filth, anything of, of just normal living or even of, of purposeful sin and rebellion, it's all here and it's wiped clean. It's wiped clean. An annual day of solemn rest and fasting is, is what that means, to afflict yourselves or to fast. Now the Jews took that and they said, well, if one day... Is what God commanded. We're going to make it 10. And they built it out. And that's not necessary. Stick with what God said. That's usually the best way to go. A day of solemn rest. The weight of our sin should be felt. And at the same time, it's a day of celebration, right? It, it reminds me of what often we come up with as we come to the table. It's a day, a moment, a time of remembrance and rejoicing. We remember. We feel the weight of those sins, and we rejoice that they've been addressed and dealt with. They've been removed. Hmm. I want to close this morning with some thoughts about forgiving and forgetting. What a beautiful thing we have here in view. God doesn't simply forgive our sins and then dangle them over us and remind us, oh man, I sure had to do a lot of work to forgive you. Remember all the junk you had going on? Remember this? This is you. This is what you did. He doesn't do that. It's not the kind of God he is. Now, there is an accuser, right? Our enemy, who's constantly accusing us, trying to pull up the past and define us by our sins and put labels on us. You are and always will be this to your shame. That's not the gospel. Friends, look at what God does. I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. He says through the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 31. How does that work exactly? Well, one of the things that it means for us, and Paul builds this out in Romans, is in chapter 8, verse 1, this glorious reality of the gospel that is accomplished through the finished work of Christ is There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are not condemned. We are not ashamed of our sin and our past. We are not paying for our sins because they've been paid in full. The work is done. It's finished. Hmm. That's such good news. Friends, all of us, have committed sins. We've all done things that we regret. We look back on with disdain. And so easy it is to fall into condemnation. Oh, such a terrible person. I can't believe I did that. What was I thinking? If I could undo that, oh, I'm so sad and sorry. And, and all of a sudden, we just drop into despair. Hmm. The gospel meets us there and pulls us out and sets us on the solid rock of the gospel and the finished work of Christ. Just a question here, maybe a little technical. How can an omniscient God who has never learned ever forget our sins? When you study through the attributes of God, you realize in in studying his omniscience, the, the omniscience of God... God is all-knowing, but he doesn't know everything because he just looked through the corridors of time with, with binoculars. Oh, that's what's gonna happen. Sweet, I know everything. That's not how he knows everything. He knows everything because he authored the story. Every moment and millisecond of history he authors. That's the basis of his omniscience. He has never learned anything nothing is new for him he never discovers which kind of then makes you ask the question how can he forget my sin what is the nature of this forgetting of my sin if it's god being like oh can't remember it i don't remember that messes up our prayer life a little bit like can god truly forget things like I prayed, Lord, oh, wow, I forgot. I'm sorry. No, that, that's not what's happening either. We know that. He's sovereign. One of the things that it points out to me is that when he forgave me, he forgave me for all of my sins that he always knew. They were always before him. And he still forgave me. Not just the sins that I had already committed at the moment he forgave me, or that I was committing, but all of my sin, past, present, and future, the, the cumulative sin effort of my entire life, paid in full, done. What does he do with it then? Well, I believe it would be like this. I will not call these sins to mind. I will not hold them against you. They've been atoned for and they have been removed. When that goat left, your sin was put behind my back. I don't dangle it in your face. I don't look upon you with disdain. I look upon you with delight because when I see you, I see the righteousness of my son. That is the reality of his forgetting of our sins. He does not use them against us. The, 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 the gavel has pounded not Guilty is the verdict. That's awesome. Some of you have views of God the Father as just like this angry guy who's up there who's just like, oh my word, here they come again. What did you do this time? Like, come on, really? He's not like that. He's not. He loves it when you come through the power of the gospel. He takes those sins that you confess, puts them behind his back, and he moves on. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful part of the gospel that sometimes we just don't emphasize enough. So the question begs, well, what should we do with past forgiven sins? Should we remember them or forget them? Have you ever wondered this? I mean, if God chooses to put them behind his back and not bring them up, maybe we should just completely like, not think about our past. Should we remember or forget our forgiven sins? I think the answer is yes. Yes. Let me show you from Paul. Paul says this, One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining for what lies ahead, I press on toward the gospel to the prize, the upward call of Christ Jesus. That. That is his mission in life. He is forgetting what lies behind. And at the same time, he says to the Gentile believers in Ephesus, hey, guys, remember that at one time you Gentiles were in the flesh. Remember that you uh, were separated at one time. You were alienated from the commonwealth. You were strangers of the covenants of promise. You had no hope. Remember that. Why would he say that? There's value in looking back. And there's value in straining for what lies ahead. Maybe you could say it like this. We should remember forgiven past sins so that we would be humbled, but not paralyzed. If we remember those sins and they drive us into despair and paralysis, then we are not living in the gospel. We are are living in the past. In, in all of this shame and guilt, and we, we are to be remembering what God has done so that we could be humbled. And I would just say evangelism is powerful here. Evangelism takes the dirt and says, look what he can do with dirt and shame and sin and just disgusting past. Look what he's done here. Can I get an amen about the power of the gospel? And we take that to the world. Yes, look back and glory in Christ. And so we remember for celebration, not condemnation. This is a part of the Christian life. It's an important part of the Christian life. It's the beauty of the gospel. We remember and we are humbled and we rejoice. Who am I and greater you? It's a God-centered gospel. Our response this morning, there may be some here who would say, Pastor, I, I understand what Christ has done to forgive me, but I really struggle to forgive myself. you ever been there? That shame just won't let go. That past that you're just so embarrassed about just echoes in your mind the enemy like he plays on that this is who you are always be this and it's so easy for us i mean it can happen in a in a moment also i'm I'm back there and i'm like no 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 hold on what's going on here i'll tell you what it is it's when you focus on you instead of jesus if you can't forgive you that makes sense neither can i I can't forgive me, but I'm not called to. Jesus is where our focus needs to be. If, if I'm struggling with forgiving myself, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to try to work, I'm try to earn, I'm trying to be better, be good enough, qualify, redeem myself. That's a trap. That's not the gospel. If you're struggling to forgive yourself, look again to Jesus. That's where your faith locks in and says, hey, the work is finished. I am forgiven. I'm free. Free. Forever I'm free. Come join the song of all the redeemed. Let's pray. Oh God, we give praise to you for all of the work that you accomplished in the gospel. We thank you for our glorious Mediator in Jesus Christ, his sinless perfection that qualified him to be the lamb that would die in our place, our sacrifice, our substitute, who would take upon himself all of our sin and pay the ransom price in his own blood to redeem us from our death and our future forever in hell under your wrath. Oh God, we thank you as well for this beautiful display of our glorious scapegoat who took upon himself all of our sin and carried it outside of the camp and did away with it once and for all. And God, we praise you that the goat is gone, that we are free, we are forgiven, that you, even now, you look upon us with delight not disdain. We love you, God. We delight in you. We praise you for this amazing love that you have shown to us. We pray in in the name of Jesus Christ, our glorious Savior. Amen and amen.